I invite you to begin finding uh, your seats once more, and together we will prepare our hearts and minds to worship the living God. Welcome to the live broadcast of a service for the worship of God, which is coming to you from the sanctuary of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. Let us stand together for the call to worship. Come to worship, people of God, with praises on your lips. We glorify the Lord who holds our hands when we slip. Come into the presence of the one who calls us into this sacred space, where the doors to grace are thrown open so all may enter. Come and hear the stories of the one who loves you. We will tell of the joy and of the love, of the peace and of the hope which is ours. Once again, welcome to the live broadcast of a service for the worship of God, which is coming to you from the sanctuary of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church at 1627 Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. This is the 95th year of radio ministry at Grace Covenant. Today's date is November 11, 2018. Today's broadcast is number 4,915. The Reverend Dr. Robert Holm Lippert is our pastor. This morning's sermon, entitled Gospel Disturbance, will be delivered by Reverend Dr. Holm Lippert. Assisting in the service today are Christopher Martin, our Director of Music and Organist, the Chancel Choir, the Junior Choir, and Violin Soloist Christine Anderson. Our church is handicapped accessible with an elevator, wheelchairs, hearing assistance, 
and large print bulletins and hymnals. Child care is provided for infants, toddlers, and kindergartners. Worship kits are available for older children at the entrance to the sanctuary. Our opening hymn is Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, which is number 263 in the Presbyterian hymnal. Consider the splendor of God's light and love in Christ Jesus and see ourselves. We are drawn to the space of honest confession, for we have not been such light, such love. Let us join in corporate prayer of confession as printed in your bulletin. Holy and loving God, our life is in you, but too often we belittle ourselves and others. Our hope is in you. But too often we place our confidence in platforms and strategies. Our joy is in you. But too often we let the trivial take all of our attention. Hear our confession. Center our hearts afresh in you. And the power of your resurrection to raise us unto life, hope, and joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The verdict of God is named in the book of Romans. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet mired in our mess and our self-interested ways, Christ died for us. Christ chooses to run for us and toward us, embrace us, die for us. And with him, all of our sins, all of the guilt, all of it. In him we are this day forgiven. In him this day we are made new. Amen. Please be seated. At this time, I invite Ashley Crane and Ann Randolph-Reevely forward if you want to 
Dan Wright here. We uh, are grateful to have received a couple new members today. And before uh, Dana McKnight formally introduces them on behalf of the session, a, a reminder, membership, every time we, we have folks join the church, we are, we are reminded that following our following of Jesus is not an individual thing. It is fundamentally done as a people, a people in covenant with one another. The grace of Jesus Christ has brought us into covenant. Grace covenant. And so we share as sisters and brothers in this walk of faith, following Jesus, encouraging one another on this way, nurturing one another in our lives together. And today we give thanks uh, that uh, the Lord has drawn two more in our midst. On behalf of the session, I present Ashley Crane, who has been received as an equivalent member of this congregation. She maintains her membership at Hillsborough Presbyterian Church, Hillsborough, North Carolina. I also present Anne Randolph Reevely, who has been received into the membership of this congregation by letter of transfer from the City Church of Richmond. Many of you recognize Ashley, who's been in the choir the last couple of years, is also a teacher here Monday through Friday at the CDC, and just so grateful for her joy and her presence. Many of you recognize as well Anne Randolph, and um, she's been with us two, three years, and been teaching Sunday school a good bit this last year, certainly this fall in the form of Grace Classroom, and, uh, and grateful to have both of these uh, folks alongside us. I turn to you now and, and ask you um, both to answer these four questions. Trusting in the gracious mercy of God, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior, trust in his grace and love? Will you be Christ's faithful disciple, obeying his word and showing his love? And will you be a faithful member of this congregation, sharing its worship and ministry through your prayers and gifts, your study and service, and so fulfill your calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Congregation, please stand. Will you encourage these new members with your gifts, and will you commit to welcoming them, loving them, and walking beside them as we seek to follow Jesus together? If so, would you say, we will? As a continued affirmation, I invite you to remain standing as we offer a prayer over these two. Holy God, thank you for calling us to be your people, joining us to Christ's body, the church. We praise you for leading Ashley and Ann Randolph to this congregation. Empower us by your spirit that together, as your family, we might love one another as Christ loved us. That we might honor him in all that we say and all that we do. That we might give our lives in service to others. And we pray this day that Ashley and Ann Randolph especially would know your blessing, your encouragement, your strengthening, your nourishment of their gifts as they step into this new season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, but I do hope that you'll find uh, these two after the service of worship and offer your own personal greeting.
are leading us in worship. And I want to invite now uh, any of our children who are six years and younger to join uh, Leah Tweel. She is heading up the front to the side door. And you all, the children, six and under, will head to Children's Chapel. And parents, you can pick them up in room 101 after the service of worship. pray. Lord, we give thanks for the joy of you, your presence, the music we can make in praise of you. We give thanks as well for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that to us this day, this would be a living word, a word that shapes and molds us in your likeness, Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 146, verses 6 through 10. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. And sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the way, ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. If you've been with us this fall, you know we've been slowly walking through the book of Acts, which is really the story of the early church. Luke is the author of Acts, and he he tells the story of a small band of Jesus followers in chapter 1 and 2 that that really end up being empowered by the Holy Spirit and, and sent out into the world to share about this Jesus, to share God's love God's healing, God's power, and and we've seen a number of stories where that's happened in surprising and unlikely ways. Today, we see the Apostle Paul carrying this message into Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. It sounds rather strange to us, so we'd like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. 
For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of all the places where they would go, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others says, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 307 BCE, the philosopher Epicurus bought a house with a private garden located outside the city of Athens. It was a simple, beautiful space that became very much affiliated with this burgeoning philosophy that he was teaching and these rich friendships that were growing in that garden area as they grew around the philosophy. The garden really became a a symbol of Epicureanism, which became eventually quite popular again in ancient Greece. It was a school of philosophy that believed that happiness was attained most centrally through pleasurable experiences. They don't, didn't really believe in a God, or they were open to a, some general sense of a God, but vague, distant, uninvolved. Really, they believed in eating well, drinking well, having nice things, having good friends for the few years you have on earth, but also always in moderation. You eat too much, you drink too much, you're going to pay for that. You have too many things, well, that becomes a burden. Epicureans are not hedonists. It's a school of moderate pleasure. They will do anything to avoid pain, suffering, brings those kinds of of things upon oneself. Always the pursuit is what uh, the word really best translated is, is a pure state of tranquility. Thomas Jefferson was a self-proclaimed Epicurean. And so when he he writes that among the rights of a, a human being are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness... Happiness, for him, did not mean anything you like for as long as you'd like, for as much as you'd like. Really, it had more of that Epicurean sense of uh, pleasure in a moderated, good, not too much, not too little sense. A people of the private garden, Epicureans. The chief rival to the Epicurean philosophy in the Hellenistic world was Stoicism. And really, on the whole, they were a larger group of the two. That school was founded about the same time as Epicureanism uh, in Athens by Zeno of Cyprus. 
And Stoicism gets its name because Zeno would teach his philosophy out on his front porch. And porch in Greek is stoa. And it was really perfect for them. Because whereas Epicureanism drew people away from public life, your family, your friends over here in the garden, Stoicism called them to a life that was set up right in the middle of public life, right in the midst of civic affairs. It was a philosophy that really believed there are rational and virtuous principles that govern the world. And so they had sort of a providential sense of God and God's governance and divinity. And if we can live in accordance with those rational, virtuous principles ordained by the divine, we'll be happy. If Epicureanism values the experiential experience above all else, feelings, Stoicism values the mind, reason, logic. It distrusts emotions. The ideal really was sort of an unemotional, rational, self-sufficient person who can face whatever whims, pains, or trials with sort of a consistent dignity and a this-too-shall-pass manner. You have power over your mind. Not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength, Marcus Aurelius, one of the most well-known Stoics, once wrote. And so the porch is a good place for the Stoics because, you know, public life, public opinion, those things can sway and there's all these heated emotions. But the Stoic can stand there and with reason and wisdom decide according to the rational designs of the universe. People of the garden, people of the porch. Pleasurable experiences, rational thinking. Trust your gut, trust your feeling, trust your mind, trust the data. Friendships nourished over here. Duty in the fray. These were the two predominant schools in ancient Greece. Both of them attractive qualities. Some of them have qualities that definitely have an overlap with Christianity do you sense one more than the other accords with Christianity? Are we, are we more garden people, more porch people, or is it kind of a mix? Or, or would there be maybe a, another image altogether that would get at what really frames and shapes who we are and what we believe and how we act? Athens was the epicenter of the leading philosophies of the day, and You heard the Apostle Paul eventually makes his way there and he proves quite the debater. And in the Epicurean and Stoic leaders, they they notice. You heard them inquire. May we know what this new teaching is you are presenting. So they they invite him to the Areopagus, a a platform that served in many ways uh, much like a modern day TED talk might work in our day and age. The, The leading thinkers and philosophies offering on this public forum their new insights for public consumption, public debate. Paul gets up there, he says, Athenians, I see how religious you are in every way. I've walked through your city and I've been studying all your objects of worship. I I saw one uh, that had an inscription to an unknown God. Athenians, I see you have an innate hunger for something more, something bigger than yourselves. You're asking some of the big probing questions. I see you are religious. Paul starts with showing this real awareness of the city and the people And what they value. He doesn't scathe them for that which is empty. He could. But instead he praises the religious impulse he sees at work. He then continues really this pattern of finding common ground with his 
hearer. And we won't go into all the details here, but, but really verses 24 through 29 where Paul talks about, let me tell you who the living God is that maybe you call an unknown God. Uh, all of what he says for about five verses is somehow or another approximated in ancient pagan writing. God made all things, has given all creatures their life and their breath. Well, actually, Stoics could go for that. They might mean it a little differently, but that's okay. God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. Epicureans and Stoics can, can both go. Whatever version of God they might take certainly is not one made in temples, not dwelling in, in these physical things. God made all nations and appointed times and boundaries for them. Well, Stoics liked that certainly orderly sense of providence. In God, we, we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. Paul right there is quoting an Athenian poet. Those aren't even his words. It's as if he's saying, what, sh- what I believe is, is really what you all have said so beautifully in your own poetry. I mean, a good 90% of this speech Involves Paul naming commonalities, bridge building, shared assumptions, especially with the Stoics who are a little bit easier on this point because they have a more obvious belief in God. Why? One of my favorite reflections is um, from Abraham Lincoln is from his speech he gave in 1842 to the Washington Temperance Society. It's, it's a bit of a longer quote, but it's one I want to read in whole because I think it is so timely and relevant both to our passage and our day and age. And he says, you know, it's an old and true maxim that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. So with men. If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Therein is a drop of honey that catches his heart, which, say what he will, is the great high road to his reason, and which, when once gained, you will find but little trouble in convincing his judgment of the justice of your cause, if indeed that cause really be a just one. On the contrary, assume to dictate his judgment or to command his action, or to mark him as one to be shunned and despised, and he will retreat within himself, close all avenues to his head and his heart. And though your cause be naked truth itself, transformed into the heaviest lance, harder than steel, sharper than steel can be made, and though you throw it with more than a Herculean force and precision, You shall no more be able to pierce him than to penetrate the hard shell of a tortoise with a wry straw. Such is man, and so must he be understood by those who would lead him. If you want another person to see your side, to follow your lead, to be open to something important to you, a view, a vote, a faith, if you want your child... To listen and be persuaded. If you want any measure of real lasting good influence in any arena of life, it's like trying to penetrate the hard shell of a tortoise with a rye straw if you simply dictate, control, command, insist. And here's the real catch, even if you're 100% right. A drop of honey catches the heart. Athenians, I see you are so very religious. 
I, I don't take Paul's tone as that of maybe a stereotypical salesperson who's really just trying to say anything to get you to buy something. I, I think we have enough of his writings and stories about his actions to know there is a real genuine honesty to his tone and, and way of being. I think he does give 90% of the speech trying to, to find honest commendation and common ground and bridge building where he can. This is Paul being in his own words, all things to all people. This is Paul recognizing that no matter who we encounter, they are made in the image of God, and so they have something of God coming in and through their lives somewhere, somehow. Let's not pretend, though, that this is easy for him. Verse 16 makes clear, when Paul arrived in Athens, he is grieved by what he sees. The Greek word there, it's also translated in some Bibles as angered, provoked, stirred to deep discontent. What he sees these people giving their money and time and attention and allegiance to is so false, so wrong, so dangerous, so harmful. How can you not see? And to be sure, sometimes the only response to utter evil and falsehood is to turn the tables in the temple. The anger gets expressed in a prophetic gesture. Jesus, you recall famously, did that and the hypocrisy going on among religious leaders. But turning the table, it is a pronounced prophetic moment when it is used rightly, when it is used at certain times. You use it all the time and you may as well poke straw at a turtle. For the most part, there is a great deal of wisdom in marriages, our friendships, our politics, our workplaces to join Paul in this love is patient posture. Athenians, I see you are religious in every way. And yet, at the same time, what makes Paul's speech so remarkable, so memorable, is not only the great lengths he really does go to bridge build. Bridge, uh, build bridges, find commonality, show forth patience with those he has some real angst about. It's also that Paul knows the central thing about which he simply cannot compromise. The central thing that is going to be different, and it is what it is, whether the Athenians can go for it or not. And he gives some articulation to that distinctive in verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. 90% of the speech, finding that common ground, showing a real love and connection and commonality, But then also this most basic thing about following a man named Jesus. Jesus is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus is the standard. Jesus, not pleasure. Jesus, not reason. Jesus, though those may intersect and overlap at points, but Jesus ultimately has the final say about what matters, who matters, how things go. Why is Jesus The final say, the final judge, according to Paul? Well, because Jesus rose from the dead. He's stronger than death. He's alive. For Paul, or for for Luke's telling of Paul's argument here, the resurrection of Jesus confirms and validates everything Jesus did and taught. Because Jesus is raised from death, his way, 
his teachings, his judgments. They carry a, a power no other person or philosophy has. And some scoff, some just won't have it. A crucified Jewish man alive again and in charge of everything, judge. They're scandalized again, not just by the concept of resurrection, but what Paul is getting at, that resurrection means Jesus is judge. And perhaps they're scandalized because they've heard some of what Jesus' judgments sound like. Perhaps some of them had gotten wind about Jesus making a word of judgment, a verdict upon reality when he first showed up on the scene. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek. Blessed who are meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. I mean, some of these pronouncements are anathema to Epicureans who prize the avoidance of pain. What do you mean pronouncing the verdict of blessedness? Upon those in the depths of pain. Or, or another time, do you remember uh, Jesus tells that parable? He said, This is kind of what the kingdom of God is like. And he said, It's, it's a vineyard owner who goes out and gets people to, to work in the vineyard real early and says, I'll pay you this. Goes back at, at 9 a.m. and gets a few more workers. Noon, gets a few more workers. Goes out at 3 again, gets a few more laborers. Goes one more time out and at 5 o'clock and gets a few more workers. And at the end of the day, The vineyard owner pays everybody the exact same thing, whether they worked all day or just that last hour. And Jesus finishes this parable by saying, so the last will be first. The first will be last. And the Stoics who value that deep sense of logic and order are scandalized how unfair, how illogical, how upside down if this one is judge. Or yet again, Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about uh, the day of judgment. He talks about the sheep and the goats, and he looks over at, at some and says, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I, I needed clothes, clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then he looks to those on the other side of him, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give anything. I was thirsty and you didn't. And, and, and he goes down like that. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Well, well this is just not a priority that's going to gain a whole lot of traction among sort of the garden people who really are trying to prioritize a pleasurable way of being for the few years of life that we got. Or or one more time, maybe again in his debating in Athens, Paul has even explained one of the concepts about Jesus' most final verdict upon humanity that he will eventually put in his letter to the Romans. You heard it earlier in the service of worship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The judge's ultimate verdict is to name the sin of every person, the failing, the shortfall, the evil, and to take their sin upon the cross and forgive every measure of it. Your failure, your evil, they are judged, they are nailed there. The final verdict is forgiveness, and I have pursued that and pursued you while you were yet sinners. As Christians, when we name that Jesus rose from the grave, 
Part of what that means is what we confess week to week. He shall judge the quick and the dead. He has the final authority, the final say on who matters, what matters, what we pay attention to. It's a scandalous word of grace, time and again. But I like how C.S. Lewis once observed in his book, Mere Christianity. You know, if Christianity offered us just the kind of universe we'd always expected, if it was a religion that basically had common ground with every other religion, you call it that, we call it this, but it's, it's really all just kind of the same. He says, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing we would have made up. It has just that bizarre twist about it that real things have. The next place that Paul goes in the book of Acts after Athens is Corinth. And perhaps he's working out all the different approaches that people have to life. He's just debated these folks who who really, they make their decisions based on what's going to be most pleasurable, others what's in their best self-interest, others what's most rational. And he's given his argument, he's tried to work out and explain where there's common ground and where there's just this fundamental distinction that really does shape uh, a different way of being and and, and thinking in this world. It's almost like he, 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 he nails it most concisely when he finally gets to the Corinthians. It's, it's a little, little vague there in Athens. Because he finally gets to the Corinthians and then he writes them a letter a little bit later where he writes this sentence. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Some scoff. Some want to hear more. And some followed. Amen. In response to God's word, let us stand together singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. You are listening to the live broadcast of a worship service at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. You have just heard this morning's sermon entitled Gospel Disturbance, which was delivered by Reverend Dr. Robert Holm Lippert. The congregation will now join in singing Christ the Lord is Risen Today, which is number 113 in the Presbyterian Hymnal.
Let us confess together what it is that we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Let us join together in a word of prayer. Most gracious God, we give thanks for your gracious judgment of life, of forgiveness, of grace. (laughs) That in Jesus Christ, your verdict upon us and this world is one of profound and undeserved benevolence reaching deeper and wider than our imaginations or hopes can even fathom. Knowing this, we lift to you people and places in this moment greatly in need of your surprising and your surpassing benevolence, love, and life. We pray for those grieving the loss of life in California as the wildfires rage, those escaping right now and those who have escaped safely even as they know nearly all they have known is consumed. Have mercy upon each of these. For those fighting the fires day after day for their families. Protect them, uphold them, strengthen them. Have mercy upon each of these. For those in Southern California who grieve the loss of a loved one after still another shooting. Have mercy upon each of them. May they know you suffering with them, raising them to yourself. May your justice and love be at work in our hearts, in our governance, in our society, that violence upon one another would cease more even, that by your mercy our violence would be transformed into love. For those re-elected, for those newly elected, empower them to transition and lead with wisdom and compassion. Strengthen them with a spirit to serve in humility and justice. We give thanks for all of the veterans in our midst, our lives, our country this day. We pray for those who have served, those serving. Certainly for those who are deployed in their service right now, we pray for their safety and well-being as well as that of their families. We ask also for the healing of those who have been wounded in body and soul. For the wounds both visible and invisible that have accumulated in recent and not so recent conflicts and war. We pray also for peace. We know that your final verdict is swords turned into plowshares. Your final verdict is peace among the nations, peace between enemies. 
Guard our hearts and the hearts of all who serve from allowing hatred to take root. Fill us with your justice, your compassion, your truth. That the way we conduct our lives might echo your verdict of peace. And we pray for those quite near us. Those aching, those ailing. Those grieving, those tired. Those lonely, those guilty. Those recovering, those searching. And those seemingly perfectly content. Fill each of them and heal each of them and renew each of them with your love. And then for those who have no one to pray for them, but your cross pronounces a verdict that in fact they are central to your heart. For them, fill them and heal them and renew them with your love. Might we, your church, in the coming days be embraced by one of these so very central. We enfold all of our prayers into the prayer that you taught us, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In response to the grace we know in Christ Jesus, we offer ourselves, we we offer our finances. We consider what does it look like to steward faithfully, generously all that you have given us, God. And in this space of worship, you're invited to discern what that giving might Look like some of you um, make a, a pledge, a covenant to be part of the ministry and mission of this church year by year. And if you weren't in worship last week, but uh, you did want to make a covenant to the 2019 uh, budget and mini- mission and ministry, you can do that right now. There are uh, covenant cards in your pews. You can fill one out and place that in the offering plate. Uh, again, if you didn't get to do that last week. Uh, finally, a reminder that you do have your. Uh, communication cards in your bulletin and just ask that uh, you let us know that you're here and certainly if we can come alongside you uh, in praise or prayers of petition in this season of life.
Most gracious God, we give thanks for the peace, for the love, for the joy that we know in you. We give thanks that we live and we move and we have our being in you both now and forever. These ties, these offerings, they are expressions of our gratitude. Use them to further your generous and surprising and gracious verdict upon this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us remain standing as together we sing, Be Thou My Vision. As always, immediately after this service, you're invited just down the hallway this direction to our social room for a reception, and I hope uh, you'll take a moment to offer greetings and welcome to Ashley, Ann, and Randolph. I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit hold you, keep you, and root you afresh in the heart of our gracious God this day and always. Amen.
For the past hour, you have been listening to the worship service at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. Please join us again next Sunday through our radio ministry or in our sanctuary at 1627 Monument Avenue. You're also welcome to join us each Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. for Wednesday night supper. Your announcer today has been John Harris, and the engineer was Cameron Baird. This service streams live and can be accessed through the Grace Covenant website, which is grace-covenant.org. We now return you to Christian Talk Radio on WLES, 590 on your AM dial, and 97.7 on your FM dial. Thank you.